1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks for joining me today. I just finished talking with Justin Jacobs about his new book, Xinjiang and the Modern Chinese State. This came out in 2016 with University of Washington Press. Now, Xinjiang is a region of the globe that is of broad interest right now to lots of different kinds of people for lots of different kinds of reasons. And what Justin's book does is it works very closely and in great detail with archival collections and materials that allow him to provide an intricate account of successive efforts um, of governing Xinjiang as a region of China, looking in turn at the factors that were responsible for making these successive efforts um, turn out the way they did. And so he takes us into... Republican Xinjiang, and moves us all the way to consider, um, by the end of the conversation, certainly, what some of the ramifications of this historical account are or might be for understanding Xinjiang as part of China moving forward. So this is a book that's going to be of wide interest to anybody who is particularly engaged with questions of empire and nation-state. One of the things that you'll hear us talking about early on is that the book tries to trouble or problematize a kind of assumed historiography that has China moving from a Qing empire to a nation state. And instead, what Justin's doing is he's proposing an idea of a national empire to understand China, Um, and in particular, understanding it through this case study of the management of Xinjiang um, and the Uyghurs. So it's a really interesting story. There's a lot of detail in the book that we didn't have a chance in the conversation to get into um, in its kind of nuance and intricacy. But you will, I think, get a sense from the conversation of the overall kind of narrative of the book and the reasons why I think it's going to be of such broad interest. So I hope you enjoy. Thank you as ever for listening, um, and thanks for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Justin Jacobs about his new book, Xinjiang and the Modern Chinese State. Welcome to the new Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Justin, and thanks so much both, I think, for writing a book um, that's really, really interesting and also for making time to talk with me about it today. Welcome to yeah. the podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's nice to be here.
1: So let's start with the traditional question for the channel. and It's the big one, right? What brought you to the study of China and, and why modern China in particular?
0: Um, Yeah, it's always, I always reflect back. I have this interesting story that I usually tell whenever people ask me that question. Um, It goes back, I I can can actually pinpoint the day. It's May 17, 1994, (laughs) because it was my birthday, Um, and I had a Super Nintendo, and I got, as a gift, I got a role-playing game. My mom knew I liked role-playing games, so she got me one that had just happened to be The Romance of the Three Kingdoms. Um, and because she knew, she knew I liked role-playing games, uh, the, cho- the decision of a Chinese backdrop was com- entirely coincidental. Um, and I played that game. It was my favorite game for over a year. And uh, I, I loved conquering China uh, with various warlords over and over again until finally I thought, I need some way to continue this experience beyond the video game. And I remember looking in the instruction booklet and seeing that it said it was based on a historical novel. Um, so at that age, I remember I went out and I tried to find the translation of romance of the three kingdoms. And I first read a, uh, a, an abridged version by Moss Roberts, I believe it was. And then I eventually got the whole 1500 page version one. Um, and from that point on for the rest of my teenage years, I was always sort of just interested in all things, Asia, um, not really necessarily China specifically, I would go to the store, the video store, which we don't have those anymore, really. I used to go to the, the, the video store, and I would rent all the movies that had to do with Asia, all the Chungkaige movies, Zhang Imo, uh, Akira Kurosawa movies, uh, Japan, Korea, China. That all was the same to me at the time. Um, and that sustained just sort of this low-level background interest in all things Asia and China until I got into uh, college. I went to University of Washington and I finally decided to try out Chinese, a Chinese language course. I chickened out my first, my, as a freshman and sophomore, I signed up and then got out. But my junior year, I finally decided I'm really going to try this for the first time. Um, and I just loved studying Chinese so much. It was the most exciting language I'd ever studied. It was, seemed so different from English. Um, and I know a lot of people think Chinese is hard and it scares them away. I, I, I sort of felt the opposite for some reason. It just, once you got past the characters and the tones, you know, it was a really fun language to... To study, um, and from that point on, it was just a matter of how do I turn my my interest in Asia and my now my Chinese language uh, um, investment into a salary one day. Um, and most of my twenties were involved in trying to figure out how I could turn China into a job.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, very briefly, before we were recording, you mentioned that you were in journalism before academia. So, what occasioned that switch?
0: Um, yeah, I had uh, – in, back in high school and then all the way through college, I, I just worked on school newspaper. I worked on the university newspaper, and then I worked at the Seattle Times actually for a while as well in their uh, sports department. Um, and uh, for – I'll tell you what I didn't like about journalism. Um, what I didn't like about doing it was – I didn't like dealing with people. It's <laughs> going to sound horrible to say it this way. I, I didn't like dealing with people who were alive. Um, it was it was it was too close to home. Uh, I, I I felt like I had to bother people. I had to impose upon their lives. I had to get them to to tell me things that they might not want to talk about. And for me, at least, I know it's not everyone feels this way. And I'm not you know suggesting that journalism's like this. But I just felt like I was. Exploiting something um, And it was a human resource That was alive right in front of me And it bothered me And when I started to study history a little bit I realized that I had all the joy And, and, and things that I liked about journalism um, Creating my own narrative From scratch Doing research Compiling uh, evidence And then putting it into a coherent narrative Everything I liked was there But everyone was dead um, And so I didn't, have, I didn't have that I didn't have that awkward feeling that I was uh, exploiting a live human being before me. Um, I don't get that feeling when I'm studying history. And so it was really, it was a perfect match.
1: So why Xinjiang? How did you come to this particular topic as the focus of your research?
0: Xinjiang also. um, I can pinpoint these things pretty precisely. Uh, When uh, September 11th happened, uh, I I was 21 years old, and I uh, I was entering my senior year in college, uh, taking Chinese language classes. And ever since then, I I, I remember very distinctly on the news all the time, we would see images of the Middle East, and in the background, you'd see Arabic script all over the place. And I think I had the same reaction to that 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 I did with Chinese several years earlier. It just seemed so mysterious to me, and I wanted to understand it. I didn't like the fact that there was this really – Um, attractive looking language and script out there that I could make uh, no sense of whatsoever and I thought if I ever have the opportunity I would love to maybe study Arabic a little while uh, to know how that script works and um, it was a wonderful coincidence just two years later this was uh, 2003 at University of Washington I went to do an MA in International Studies at the Jackson School and um, they just happened to have a visiting professor from Xinjiang University um, who was going to teach Uyghur for a couple of years and I thought to myself well by this point. I've already studied Chinese for a couple years as an undergrad. I I went to Taiwan for a year. I've been to China. I feel fairly comfortable with my Chinese. Um, Wouldn't this be wonderful? I could study a language that has to do with China. It's a language spoken in China, but it's not Chinese. And I'll get to learn the Arabic script to boot. Uh, So it checked off all of my boxes. Um, So I started studying Uyghur for a couple of years. And, um, you know, it's just like with Chinese before. I, I always start with a language. That's what piques my interest. And then I slowly start to build up Uh, an interest in everything that surrounds that language, the the people, the history, um, the the natural landscape. I like traveling there. Um, And uh, Xinjiang was an attractive travel destination for me as well. I never really learned Uyghur all that well. I mean, I learned to read it for a while, for a couple of years. Um, But uh, I eventually, once I got into the dissertation work and and the book project, I realized I was going to go in a different direction. Than, uh, Uyghur sources. So uh, I don't really claim that I'm fluent in Uyghur anymore today, but it was definitely the springboard that piqued my interest in northwestern China. Um, and the other one was uh, it overlapped really well with my interest in the outdoors and hiking and traveling. Um, and I was aware that Xinjiang was one of the most na- uh, naturally stunning Beautiful places in all of China, the deserts in the south, in the north, you have the mountains and the nomads and and, and all of that. Uh, So when I finally got to travel there, I spent a whole uh, summer one time um, and it just mesmerized me and solidified that interest. So um, it wasn't like an intellectual question that I was burning to answer at the time. It was uh, the language and then traveling there um, all as a result of September 11th sort of putting Arabic Um, into the foreground. Um, And then eventually, just like with Chinese, it was a matter of how do I turn this into a job now?
1: So you mentioned um, the dissertation and then the book, and this is a book that started, um, at least as a project, as a dissertation. Um, So let's talk a little bit about that transition. Were there any kind of major changes in the way you were thinking about conceptualizing or structuring the project from one uh, phase to the other?
0: Um, The dissertation underwent uh, enormous changes and transformation, uh, before it became a book, it was actually, it was a long, arduous and fairly painful process as well. Um, to begin with was simply the size of it. Um, my dissertation was something like 180,000 words. It was almost 500. Oh my pages.
1: goodness! Wow.
0: It was almost, it was almost 500 pages. I mean, I was so everything I found, I put in there, um, somewhat undiscriminatingly as it later turned out um, and the process uh, I was also naive when I first sent the manuscript to the first uh, book publisher that I solicited um, I was talking about how you know this is going to be 150,000 word manuscript and uh, I I I, I I should not have been surprised to get the rejection letter back within a week or two, you know, because uh, no one's going to publish a book like that, not in this academic climate. Yeah,
1: we're um, like, look um, at how many words I can make. Aren't I awesome? And yeah, like, right. Actually,
0: I felt so proud of how many words I, <laughs> look, I so, so not believe it. Um, and so part of the process was simply, uh, you know, just having to come to terms with the fact that you can't publish all of this, and you resist that at first. You really resist it because it feels like it's, it, it, it's it's your baby. It's something that you own. you work so hard on it's, it. It's a part of you. Um, but as I became increasingly convinced through having other people read it and the peer review process that there were parts that were very interesting, but they didn't speak to any larger issues. Um, you couldn't really do anything with it. Um, that's when I started realizing that I really do have a lot of extraneous material here. I need to go back, reread everything, and start to, you know, read this like I'm reading my own students' work. I I, I have to tear it apart. I, I have to identify common themes, um, and then sit down with myself and say, "This is actually what you're talking about. This is the only common theme that comes through all 180,000 words of this." Um, and eventually, I was okay with that I I would just cut an entire chapter sometimes and you know it almost feels like a relief afterwards it's almost like something that you know you have to do and you don't realize it till it's gone but then you realize that it was a burden that was holding you back and it was liberating actually to be able to just delete an entire chapter and realize that's okay um not, not only is it okay the book manuscript will be better as a result um So that's sort of just like the length issue. The other major issue was that I had no real intellectual framework for the project. I had an empirical narrative in which I threw everything in the kitchen sink in um, to say what happened in Xinjiang. Uh, Whatever source I had, uh, archival source, I just put it in there. Um, And it was only when I started reading widely in comparative empire scholarly literature is when i started to realize that there were similarities to what i was looking at with um all the other european empires with the russian empire with the japanese empire Um, and i started to to understand the utility of comparative scholarship on empires that uh, i hadn't taken all that seriously when i was in my graduate school program but when i came face-to-face face with the realization that I had this, this manuscript has to have a point. It has to have an argument. It can't just be an interesting, colorful narrative of a bunch of warlords in northwestern China over a 50-year period. Um, you know, it's always helps when you realize that 10 years on the line <laughs> and your entire life and career is on the line. That can get you kickstarted.
1: Mm-hmm. That can be a motivator. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you've already mentioned like a couple of things that I think take us really nicely into some of the issues that you bring up in the introduction that really, I think, helpfully frame the project. One of the common themes or maybe um, kind of big ideas that comes up in the introduction is the idea of strategies of difference. Mm -hmm. So um, the introduction is going to introduce... Um, a, and, and we'll talk about some of these, a bunch of concepts that'll situate this within a kind of broader historiography of some of the things you've talked about, right? Empire, um, the idea of a, a nation, and we'll talk about that as well. But one of the most important themes throughout the book is... a. Uh, the theme of difference. So you talk about the idea that strategies of difference have consistently marked Xinjiang as part of the Chinese state. So as a way of maybe opening into this project, can you talk a little bit about that, Um, this notion of strategies of difference? What's important for us to understand about the importance of that notion for you and for the project?
0: Right. Uh, Strategies of difference. um, That concept to me, uh, really, I mean, it's It it, it doesn't begin in the 20th century. Scholars have already recognized that uh, the Qing dynasty and many of the other dynasties before them um, also had employed strategies of difference in ruling their East Asian empires. Um, What I'm trying to show in Xinjiang in the 20th century is that these ideas that there are distinct elements of the Chinese state and they should be separated, segregated from one another, um, that didn't end in 1911. Uh, It didn't end with the fall of the Manchus. It didn't end with the fall of the last uh, northern hybrid state, so to speak, the the northern nomad or semi-nomadic peoples who come down and establish um, dynasties like the Mongols did before as well. Um, And the first Han rulers who are sent out to the old non-Han dependencies, the old non-Han frontiers. Um, they're looking for ways to rule this land, Um, and they're looking at what other empires are doing with their peripheries, and they're looking at what the Chinese empires have done in the past. And uh, Yang Zenzhen, the first governor uh, of Xinjiang during the Republic, he's one of the first to make it an explicit element of his ruling strategy um, (laughs) that the borderlands are different than the rest of China, Um, We are not creating a nation state. Nation state is on the lips of everyone. Everyone's talking about a nation state. Everyone's talking about Han nationalism, the Han revolution. And he's one of the first to say, um, you know, hold on a minute. That model only applies to the inner provinces out here on the frontier. um, Everything is different. And therefore, because everything is different, it must be ruled differently as well. Um, And every successive Chinese ruler of Xinjiang, and I believe the other peripheries as well, throughout the 20th century, they continue this strategy of saying, if we don't do things differently on the non-Han frontier, uh, bad things will happen. Uh, For one reason or another, we have to treat that area differently, or at least give the appearance of treating it differently. Whether they always treat it differently in practice is uh, a matter of debate. It's something that I examine in every single decade. Um, But that is seen as a hallmark Of Chinese rule along the frontier. Um, You know, out out on the frontier, you can talk about difference in a way that you wouldn't talk about difference in the inner provinces. Um, The only real change that occurs in the 20th century from the types of strategies of difference that were applied in previous empires is that the type of difference that is envisioned is national difference. Um, It's seen as difference that arises in response to the idea of nationalism. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is where I get into uh, some more specifics, a little more detail. Instead of just talking about strategies of difference, I elucidate two specific um, uh, types of rule, which I uh, describe as ethno-elitist and Mm -hmm. ethno-populist. Basically, I'm suggesting that ethno-elitism is a strategy that pretty much had characterized almost every single Multi ethnic, multicultural empire um, for the past 2,000 years of Chinese empires. I mean, it just basically means that the people who are in power, whether they're Han, whether they're Manchu, whether they're Tabgach, whether they're Khitan, whether they're Mongol, um, they will rule areas populated by different peoples by employing their own elites, their own leaders. Um, if you're ruling over the Uyghurs, you are going to. You're not going to try to send your own direct representatives to rule over them. Uh, You're going to employ intermediaries. You're going to employ their own leaders. You're just going to add yourself on as another layer of rule to what already exists. And as long as these new intermediaries that are drawn from the region pay you the political obeisance that you require – you're not going to meddle too much in what goes on on the ground. In other words, you're not going to pay much attention to the commoners. As long as the tax revenue is sent in, as long as there's no rebellions, um, the commoners are going to live their life the way that they already have, and you're not going to try to change that. Um, And in response to the rise of nationalism, this is when you see – Han rulers, in first in the 1930s and increasingly in the 1940s until it's finally institutionally enshrined in the 1950s, um, make use of a new type of strategy called ethnopopulism. Um, and they'll get this idea from the Soviet Union. Um Ethnopopulism, the idea basically being that you no longer are going to justify the maintenance of difference on the frontier by saying we are Um, making an alliance with the Muslim kings, uh, with the Mongol Khans who are already in these regions. Um, We're going to make alliances with the revolutionary proletariat or just the revolutionary masses. Um, And that's where we're going to get our political legitimacy from. Uh, Namely, we don't assimilate you. Uh, We're not carrying out a project of Han assimilation. We're carrying out a project of enfranchisement, national enfranchisement. Um, You don't need to go and seek your own independent state. You don't need to separate from the Chinese state. Um, All you need to do is uh, uh, remain under our umbrella, and we will prove to you that we are enlightened by uplifting, or at least giving the appearance of uplifting, the common non-Han peoples. Um, And they'll try to mobilize the masses like previous conservative rulers who peddled ethno-elitism would never uh, think of doing. Um, they'll try to create new organizations in the 1930s the Han warlord Sheng chi will create the anti-imperialist society um, and associations for Ethnocultural advancement in which he's trying to engage uh, commoner Mongols, commoner Uyghurs, commoner Kyrgyz um, and, and, and tell them you're a part of the government now, uh, you guys are ruling over yourselves, I've given you autonomy um, it's still a form of difference all right? it's still a form of saying We're sponsoring the perpetuation of a distinct identity among the people we rule over. We don't have a a platform of roughshod assimilation. Mm -hmm. Um, But the difference is no longer just we're maintaining um, elites, ethnoculturally different elites. We are maintaining the sanctity and um, integrity of national identities from top to bottom on the pyram- on, on, on the social hierarchy. Uh, everyone now is supposed to be enfranchised by the state. Now, to the degree they actually do this, that's a, a question that I examined, uh, particularly in, I think, Chapter 5. I think that's the one in the, in the 1950s when the communists come to power. For most of the Republican era, no... No Han governor who professes ethno-populism is ever in a position to actually try to implement it for more than a year or two. Uh, it's only with the stability after 1949 that you have anyone with an opportunity to try to see if they can sort of put their money where their mouth is.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Now, in the introduction, there's a whole lot of other stuff that we won't have time to talk about um, in too much detail. I'll just flag some of these things um, that can speak to some of what you've just said. Um, You talk about modern China as an empire of difference, and the book suggests that rather than um the kind of uh, what has become a very common trope in his uh, in the history of modern China this trope that there was the Qing there was an empire and then it became a nation state the book suggests in the introduction instead that we understand China in this period as a national empire so again it speaks to some of what you've just mentioned and you talk also about some of the um, kind of most important archives that were most helpful for you Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of the introduction, you also raise um, a question about how this book will potentially be perceived by the Chinese government today. (laughs) And I'm I'm mentioning this because it's really striking that you do mention this in the introduction. Um, I think listeners, many listeners will probably be familiar with the um, uh, kind of controversy or conversation That happened um, fairly recently around the idea of the new Qing history and critiques of the new Qing history um, by some scholars and a scholarly body in particular in China. Um, And you talk about that and then um, consider in the introduction um, how your book and your approach might be perceived um, today. So can you talk a little bit about that? Why and in what ways does that matter to you enough to actually, you know, explicitly take that on in the introduction of the book?
0: Yeah, um, this is something that as time goes on and I get more and more distant from this project, I'll probably look back and sort of have a wry smile at the things that uh, motivated me to put that in there. But uh, from start to finish, I was just always so aware that what I was studying was extremely sensitive um, and a a topic of intense debate um, among everyone, Uh, you know, scholars, uh, uh, scholars in America, scholars in China, official Chinese government perspectives. Um, Everyone has a very strongly held held view on um, what should be said about this region. Um, And I originally, when this project began, I originally thought that I was going to utilize almost, you know, it was going to be heavily oriented towards Turkic sources, uh, Uyghur language sources, and I even spent some time studying Kazakh. Um, And I was determined to write what I was thinking of at the time, as uh, I was describing it as like a subaltern history of Xinjiang, uh, very much in a post-colonial type of mode of uh, analysis. And I was really changed when I went to Taiwan. I remember having submitted the what is it? The prospectus, I believe, you know, uh, to my advisors before I left for a year of dissertation research. I was going to go to Beijing and Arumqi, and then I stopped over in Taiwan to use the archives there. Um, and I was just blown away by the wealth and volume of Chinese archival sources related to Xinjiang that were freely available to researchers. <laughs> and I knew from my having delved in to, you know, all the historiography of Xinjiang up to that point, that most of this stuff had never been utilized before. The last major wave of scholarship on Xinjiang, um, modern 20th century Xinjiang, was really in the 1990s, and it was in the early 1990s. uh, You know, as far as a, a historian analyzing the political history of this region, you have to go back to Andrew Forbes and Linda Benson, Um, And their books were published in the 80s and 90s. Um, So there had been about a 20-year period in which a lot of archival materials had been published, both from the mainland and on Taiwan, um, and in which archives, particularly on Taiwan, had opened up for the first time. Um, And all of this stuff was mostly unavailable to scholars from previous generations. And when I realized that, um, I just immediately made the decision right there and then. I threw my prospectus out the window and I said, I have to write the political history of 20th century Xinjiang from the perspective of Chinese sources. Um, I'm not going to try to adopt a so-called subaltern Uyghur or Kazakh or just Turkic or Muslim um, uh, perspective. Um, I wasn't finding those sources for the 20th century on the one hand. um, And I was finding thousands and thousands of Chinese sources. um, And Chinese scholars had uh, taken a look at some of them. But for obvious reasons, um, Xinjiang is one of the most sensitive topics um, that there is in Chinese academia. And there wasn't really a book-length study based on all these new Chinese archival documents that have been published. Um, and so I thought to myself, I remember this is the way I, 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 I used to talk. Um, I used to say, we don't really even know what happened <laughs> in Xinjiang during the Republican era. Um, You know, everything that's been written so far is from the perspective of uh, foreign archives, British and American consulates, who uh, could be, you know, quite limited in what they're able to see and know. Um, And it was written from the perspective of Turkic expatriates who had often fled the country and were writing from Turkey or they were writing from abroad. Um, Every once in a while, when there was a rebellion of some sort, a 1930 rebellion in Khotan, a rebellion in Ely, there was uh, some documentation in Turkic um, that would become available. But it was really limited just to a couple of years. And I'm thinking to myself, there's all this Chinese documentation um, and no one's done anything with this. Um, There must be something valid to be said about the Chinese perspective. Um, So that was sort of how I decided to adopt the perspective of the Chinese ruling class in Xinjiang, um, starting at the local level, uh, the governor in Urumqi, and then when the central government tries to reassert its uh, control in Xinjiang in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, then, of course, the central government uh, national politics comes into play um, as well. As far as the sensitivity of it, um, I was so worried that I would be banned from China and my career ruined while still a grad student that I once went to an East Turkestan conference in Istanbul to meet with some Kazakh refugees for some research on this Kazakh chieftain, Osman Batur, in the 1950s. And I I told them at the time, I said, I can't do this. I can't go to Istanbul and participate in your conference under my real name. (laughs) And I told them that I'm only going to do this if you list me as Jefferson Roberts. Wow. (laughs) I used my brother's name, Jefferson, um, and I made up a name, and they agreed. They agreed to, to, to do that. So I actually went under an alias to a conference because, yeah, everyone has heard about these 13 Xinjiang scholars who have been banned and couldn't get visas for the longest time, I think some even today, as a result of publishing scholarship that's just not in line with what the official interpretations are that are allowed um, within the parameters of discourse, scholarly discourse, in China today. Um so, as to why I actually mention that in the book, um, well, it was fresh in my mind because the the year before it was published, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences had just um, made a very public and hostile attack on most of the well-known names who were involved in the new Qing scholarship, um, you know I mean they they singled out by name people like Mark Elliott <laughs> at Harvard um, and they described the scholarship as imperialist uh, you know it has it has imperialist designs on China they called it preposterous and ludicrous um, and I think I had just signed the official contract my manuscript had just been completed and sent over to press and it was just waiting for it to come out and I had one last round in which I could go over and add a few things and I remember thinking this should be addressed I, I, w- I want to head this off I know that what my book is trying to do is take the New Qing Scholarship, which now apparently uh, is being seen as imperialist. Um, and I'm extending that in the 20th century. Um, you know, they're being criticized for describing things that happened in the 1700s, for God's sake. Um, and I thought I'm taking this from 1911 all the way up to 1960. <laughs> Lord knows what they're going to do to me. <laughs> um, and so I just sort of a little feeling in there where I thought, what do I have to lose? I, I, I should put this out there and um sort of confront the issue head on. I might regret that one day. But but I did just go over in June. I gave three talks at Sichuan University. Um, I gave them in Chinese to a Chinese audience all about the book. It was uh, talking about the things in the book. And I was shocked in an environment like that. um, There was a welcome reception of everything that I had to say. I don't think it was simply just being polite to the foreigner who comes to tell them about their history. Um, I really got a sense that they were interested in what I had to say um, and given the chance to explain why I'm talking about China as an empire and to describe that word um, I think was very helpful because you know many people see the word Empire and uh, see it as a political curse word. Uh, you know you say empire and immediately it must mean that this is a bad state this is something this is uh, an evil phenomenon. Um, and I'm not using empire in that sense whatsoever. I'm trying to use it in a more um, hopefully objectively analytical sense as a type of state rather than a form of power. Um, and I think once people understand, that I'm not trying to make any sort of moral judgment of any sort by my use of the word empire, um, then its utility as an analytical term can come through. Um, And I found that given the opportunity to explain that, um, every single Chinese scholar that I met in China was very receptive to the idea of thinking about China in these terms. But the, uh, you know, the legacy of the revolutionary discourse, the anti-imperial revolutionary discourse, both Western empires and their own empires, the Qing Empire, is very strong. It's still strong today. Most people have a knee-jerk reaction when they hear the word empire.
1: Okay, thank you so much. So let's, um, what I'm going to do is just kind of summarize a little bit of what's happening in some of the early chapters, and then we can dig into some of the middle chapters entirely just because of time. But I want to give listeners a sense of, um, of what's happening in these early chapters of the book. Okay. So early in Chapter 1, we meet Yang Xin, and you've already talked a little bit about him. He becomes the Republican governor of Xinjiang. Now you introduce here, um, again, just to flag this for listeners, a notion of imperial repertoires in introducing the relationship between Russian and Chinese officials in Xinjiang. And this becomes um, kind of useful for understanding the precedents that were familiar to and that were kind of at hand for Governor Young as he assumes his post in 1912. These include territorial accommodation, dependent intermediaries, Supranational Civic Ideology, Deflection of Ethnic Tensions, and Narratives of Legitimacy. So I'll just kind of mention that. And listeners who are interested in um, reading more about any of those individual strategies will find lots of detailed accounting in Chapter 1. We move here to Chapter 2 which reframes how we understand Han rule in Xinjiang in the decades after 1916, not in terms of like whether a revolution was um, successful or um, was a failure, but instead, um, as in the words of the book, the collapse and reconstitution of imperial authority across Eurasia as brought about through competing strategies of difference. Um, You say here in Chapter 2, by 1921, it would not be an exaggeration to say that Yang stood among the ashes of Russian and Chinese imperial authority in Central Asia. And the chapter talks about the challenges of dealing with Russia early in his time as governor in Xinjiang in the face of um, revolution there. Um, And talks also about um, Russian strategies for disarming nationalism by granting forms of nationhood um, to peoples um, to make nationalism work for and not against the empire. Now, this is important because it actually is going to importantly differ from some of the strategies that are used by governors in Xinjiang um, that are not um, what uh, Russia is doing, and this creates a little bit of tension. Um, So after this, right by the end of the chapter, Yang is assassinated, Um, someone named Jin Shu Ren takes over, and the relationships that Yang built with non-Han elite of Xinjiang rapidly deteriorate. Um, This new guy, Jin, he alienates the non-Han nobles that Yang had kind of kept close and their constituencies and basically screws everything up, at least in the perspective uh, or from the perspective of one reader. This brings us to Chapter 3. And I wanted to come here because you mentioned early on in our conversation this idea of ethno-populism as mm-hmm. one of the key um, kind of terms and this is a chapter that takes us right into it. So it seems like a good place to kind of make another cut. Now when we begin Chapter 3, things have gotten really bad. Um, there's civil war in Xinjiang, or Urumqi is in shambles. So can you kind of set the stage for us? Um, What's going on at this point of the story, and how is Jin Shuren kind of bound up in this?
0: Um, What's going on in 1933, well, 1932 to 1934, really, is uh, Xinjiang is in a state of civil war. What's essentially happened is... The provinces broke, right? Uh, The the Qin government once had these things called uh, Xiexian, shared funds, in which they would take uh, uh, tax revenue, uh, excess money from the inner provinces, the wealthy inner provinces, and they'd send it out to the outer provinces to finance the cost of administration in relatively undeveloped um, uh, uh, peripheries. Now, Yang Zenshin... Uh, You know, had no more of these shared funds whatsoever. The, The central government in Beijing stopped sending them to him. And what he realized is if you don't have these supplements, if you don't have Beijing sending you supplementary money, then you can't maintain a respectable army in Xinjiang. You cannot use provincial resources in a desert province. Uh, to maintain an army that's actually capable of beating any sort of modern army that might march on you. Um, And so his strategy, one of his strategies, the entire 16 years that he's in power, um, is to try to keep his army as weak as possible. I mean, it's a joke. It's a laughingstock. All kinds of foreigners come in and they say, um, you know, that Yang's armies, Yang's men, look like beggars on on the street. And you don't even realize that they're a soldier until you see, oh, he's got a gun. Um, And when he's assassinated... (laughs) I portray this as the entry of interpro, interprovincial warlord politics finally having breached his cocoon. Um, and his successor, Jin Shuren, realizes that, um, you know, the inner, war, the, the inner warlords are coming for us now. Um, they're trying to get into Xinjiang. This, the, the Chinese Civil War, the warlord era, is not confined to the inner provinces anymore. Um, it's on our doorstep. And he realizes, if I don't want to be assassinated as well, if I don't want to join Yang in his grave, I need an army. But I have no money to raise it. So he has to uh, pretty much fleece everyone in the province. He has to fleece the Uyghur peasantry. He exacts uh, a ton of new taxes on them. Um, he uh, fleeces the, um, the Nanhan elites, the Mongols in Karashar, the the uh, the, uh, the Uyghur nobles in Hami. Um, and they all become very quickly alienated from him. And when he eventually calls on them to help him suppress the beginnings of the Civil War in 1933, they refuse. Uh, they, they won't help them anymore, saying that he's, broke the, he's broken the, the compact that once existed among uh, Yang Zinsing. Um And then he also alienates the Russians, which he can't do. Basically, he's trying to replace the fiscal subsidies of the imperial era um, without any outside support whatsoever. He says, I'm going to raise a modern army in Xinjiang without any money from the central government in Beijing and without any help from the Russians to the West. I'm going to do it myself. And you can't do that in Xinjiang. Xinjiang cannot support an army like that all on its own. Um, and all these elements come together uh, when the king, the Muslim king of Hami, uh, finally dies. And that is the, the spark that sort of sets all these other players in motion. Um, and Sheng Shichai eventually prevails in this civil war, but he doesn't do it on his own because that's not really possible in Xinjiang. Jin Shuren already showed that. Uh, Shang shih wins by making a pact, making an alliance with the Soviet Union. Essentially, what he has done is he has turned to Moscow to replace the fiscal subsidies that Beijing once gave Xinjiang. Uh, I think I described it at one point as a financial wet nurse. Xinjiang's financial wet nurse is now Uh, It comes from the west instead of coming from the east. Mm -hmm. All right. Yang tried to have no army at all. That ended in his death. Uh, Jean tried to have an army without any outside help. That ended in civil war. Sheng's going to say, well, Beijing can't help us, and Yang showed us that we can't not have an army. Jin showed us that we can't have an army without any outside assistance. The only option left is to have an army, but have assistance from the only person in the area who has the money and willingness to get involved. That's the Soviets. Um, And with Soviet money comes Soviet innovations in nationality policy as well, and that's when he begins to adapt Soviet institutions of affirmative action, and I refer to these as ethno-populism.
1: That's right. Awesome. Okay, so he begins to adapt these policies of affirmative action in Xinjiang, right? Um, and he introduces Soviet policies, but he does. There's an important difference insofar as he's not tethering nationalities to physical plots of land in the way that Soviet policies were doing, and. That's- right. That's important, and that's going to be um, continue. Or that's going to continue to be important throughout the book. So there's a lot of discussion of what happens, um, the the kind of um, uh, features of this affirmative action that he's um, promoting, uh, the features of his ethno populism. By the end of the chapter, um, things <laughs> things are not good. Um, so he shifts to hardline tactics. He purges Xinjiang officials in 1937. Lots of people get jailed, lots of people get killed, lots of complaints as a result come in about unqualified officials in the positions that are vacated by these people who are now in jail or now don't exist because they're dead, and there are lots of vacant positions. Um, There's a rebellion in Alte, and eventually Shang himself sinks into poverty and cedes authority to Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists. And this is where we are um, when Chapter 4 starts. So chapter four brings us into tensions within the nationalist government over how to govern Xinjiang. I mean, I think this story, um, it's already probably clear from listeners that this has been a hugely problematic enterprise for, any, for everyone who's been attempting to govern Xinjiang. So as we move into this chapter, um, we move into rebellion. There's a really interesting point in this chapter where you talk about, um, how important it was for you to draw on Soviet and Chinese archives to understand the origin of a super crucial, um, uh, a crucially important moment in the historiography of Xinjiang, of China, and of Central Asia, and that is the Ely Rebellion. So briefly, Justin, um, super briefly for listeners who have no idea what we're saying when we say Ely Rebellion, what is the Ely Rebellion? What do we need to understand about it? And how how were these Soviet and Chinese archives important for you in helping to understand the origins um, and the, the significance of the origins of this rebellion?
0: Right. The Ili Rebellion, um, it begins in 1944. And in its broadest outlines, it's simply the manifestation, the armed manifestation of widespread discontent at the rule of Shang Shih Tsai. They realize that his ethno-populist platform is pretty hollow, um, and he's taking all of their resources away from them. Uh, discontent exists throughout the province. Um, what the Ili Rebellion, what, what, what is unique about it, however, is that this is the Soviets coming in and recognizing that Sheng is no longer willing to work with them. He's not going to let them get the the profitable return on their investment in his his administration that he hoped for. They come in and they say, we want to create a new administration composed of indigenous Xinjiang residents loyal to the Soviet Union, who we don't have to worry about, will turn away from us. Uh, Sheng eventually turns back to the the nationalist central government um, in Nanjing and Chongqing. Um, And they say, you know, we're not going to deal with these Han warlords anymore. We want our own puppet government, essentially. We want our own satellite, Um, like Outer Mongolia had become in the Mongolian People's Republic. We want to do that in Xinjiang as well. Um, And they help uh, um, instigate the rebellion. Um, I'm not trying to suggest that it's completely artificial and that there, that there was no discontent with Zhang Tsai's rule. There absolutely was, um, but this is a clear case of the Soviets getting involved and helping push the rebellion to um, heights that it probably would not have attained on, on, on its own without outside assistance. Now, the role of Chinese and Soviet archives in this um, is absolutely crucial um, because for a long time, from the very beginning, even the scholars who were only had access to public media sources like Chinese newspapers. Um, we always knew that the Chinese claimed that the Russians were behind this. But we never had a way to get beyond this uh, sort of public discourse veneer. Um, and finally, for the first time, when I started doing research for this, I realized, all right, the Chinese archives are open now. That um, had not been available to previous generations of scholars who worked on Xinjiang. So I mined the Chinese archives as much as possible, and one of the most precious finds that I had was the unpublished diary. It was still in its handwritten form of Wu Zhongxing, who is the, nat- the first nationalist government who's, who was who, who's appointed in 1944 to replace Sheng Shihcai. Um And in his diary, it's not just his own observations from Arunqi, his diary also Um, records all the telegrams that are coming back and forth uh, with the central government, then in Chongqing, the wartime government, and throughout Xinjiang province. So it's a real ground-level Chinese perspective of what they're seeing from their intelligence agents on the ground. Um, Now, that still isn't sufficient, though. We need to know what the Soviet archives said, and for obvious reasons, those are very difficult to get a hold of. Um, And there was one scholar in the 1990s. There was a period in which Soviet archives were extremely open uh, to Soviet scholars working on all sorts of issues. Much of the affirmative action empire type stuff, Terry Martin and um, all these other books, uh, groundbreaking books, were written uh, based upon archives that had been opened in the 1990s. And and there was this one scholar, V.A. Barman, who had gotten access to stuff regarding Xinjiang. And I was reading his book, And that's when I realized for the first time, oh, my God, the Soviet archives also reflect exactly what the Chinese were saying. Um, They're basically admitting it Uh, in their own internal communications. They are admitting their extensive leading role in the Ely Rebellion. Um, and then later on, more Soviet archives uh, just only recently became available um, and were translated into English, I believe, by the Woodrow Wilson Center. Um, got got a hold of those. I don't read Russian on my own, so I haven't been going to the Russian archives, but I, I was able to get a hold of enough Russian archives on the Ely Rebellion to have confidence in stating that the Chinese suspicions and Chinese archival intelligence operations were completely confirmed and vindicated by every single Soviet archival document that came out concerning the Ely rebellion as well.
1: Great. So the rest of the chapter um, explores the nationalist response to this, um, including the recruitment of someone uh, that the book calls the Kazakh Robin Hood. I love that. Um, (laughs) To the nationalist fold, and also ultimately the appointment of the first ever native-born governor of Xinjiang. But as we move into the next chapter, we move into a context in which the communists are ascending in power. And chapter five moves us from just a focus on the nationalist government to open up and consider what happens as the authority of the communists begins to plan That of the nationalists. So briefly, um, Justin, just to kind of give us a sense of what you think is most important about what's going on here. Can you talk about some of the most important ways um, that the communist approach to matters of ethnopolitics politics? is importantly differing from that of the nationalists, um, and kind of why why does that matter for what's happening here at this point of the story?
0: Well, the Chinese communists, they said that uh, we're going to be the most enlightened steward of the non-Han borderlands, and that means um, importing what to them was uh, seen as the most scientifically advanced um, means of ruling over peoples who are ethnoculturally different than the majority population of any given state. Obviously, they're going to take that from the Soviet Union. Um, And so they import the Soviet version of affirmative action, which basically says we need to go out and, uh, you know, ostensibly in a scientific manner, we need to identify or create. um, But basically, we need to institutionalize um, all the national ethnic group identities that China has Um, and in in manageable form, um, and they eventually come up with 56 nationalities total, uh, the nationalists in their discourse and what they said when they were asked about, uh, the ethnic makeup of China that said, there's only one race. There's a Chinese race, Zhonghua Minzu. There's only one Chinese race and everyone else is a clan, um, or a tribe of that race. Um, it sounds very chauvinistic. On the surface, although as I try to show in the book, um, the, so the, the the nationalist, ironically, despite talking such a chauvinist talk, uh, walked a far more permissive walk. Whereas the Chinese communists, um, who talk a very enlightened talk, actually walked a much more chauvinistic walk. Um, but um, so the one tweak, though, the major a- adaptation that the communists are going to make is they're going to say we're not institutionalizing Soviet affirmative action at the level of a of a republic. We will will not set up individual republics within a Chinese federation. Um, There's not going to be a republic of Tibet, autonomous republic of Tibet, or an autonomous republic of the Uyghurs, Xinjiang, or Mongols, or what have you. Um, they said we're just going to have regions autonomous regions um, and you see a discussion about this take place. Uh, I have uh, this, this wonderful quote by one of the communist agents who sent to in- infiltrate Ely in 1949 and he comes back and he says all the Uyghur youth are coming up to me and they already are hearing that we're going to grant regional autonomy uh, not reg- not uh, autonomous republics. What do I say to this? Because they're familiar with the Soviet model and we're changing it um, and Zhou Enlai and many other top leaders are very explicit. They say yes of course everyone has a right to to self-determination. Um, so why are we going to be different? Well, he basically invokes the legacy of national humiliation. He basically invokes the legacy of having lost outer Mongolia, and says that if we don't do this, then this will be a pretext with which foreign powers, the foreign imperialists, will attempt to split our country. They'll say the Chinese don't uh, take care of you. Uh, we'll we'll take better care of you and help you create your own independent state of Tibet or Xinjiang. Um, and the communists basically say because we have this legacy of imperialist aggression that tries to split a that tries to split China apart like a melon, um, we can't go with that Soviet version. We have to make this final adaptation.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Now, by the end of that chapter, um, there's also some really interesting um, uh, history of the creation of the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, and the project that sent millions of Han migrants into Xinjiang as a kind of affirmative action in Xinjiang. So there's a lot of really, really interesting detail of that history there at the end of Chapter 5 that I just want to mark for listeners who are particularly interested in that part of the story. But as we move to, uh, toward the conclusion of our conversation, and certainly toward the conclusion of the book, we move to a chapter um, that is called the Xinjiang Government in Exile. Now this might be a surprise for some readers and listeners who have heard of the Tibetan Government um, in Exile, right, but might not have realized that a Xinjiang Government in Exile existed, um, ever existed, and that's, that's kind of part of the point um, that comes out of this chapter, right? Tibet successfully mobilized international support um, through its government in exile, and Xinjiang didn't. And the chapter kind of takes on the history of the Xinjiang government in exile and considers why, um, what some of the reasons may have been um, for this differential in the relative success in in gaining an international platform that might translate into forms of support that have real uh, political consequences. So the Xinjiang government in exile, Justin, what is it um, and why did it not take off internationally in the way that the Tibetan government in exile did?
0: Right. Uh, I'm glad you asked about the Xinjiang government in exile. That was by far the most exciting uh, find that I made in the course of my research and it was the most fun chapter to write because um, it, it was all so completely fresh. I did not know that this that this office had existed um, for such a long time. Basically, what was the Xinjiang government in exile? It was an office set up in Taiwan by the Nationalists after 1949 that uh, uh, claimed to represent Xinjiang in world affairs. Because remember, the Nationalists still had, held the China seat in the United Nations. Um, and they attempted to speak for all of the mainland still in world affairs. And uh, some of what they did is known. For the inner provinces, uh, we know also that they had a committee for Tibetan and Mongolian affairs that they set up again on Taiwan. They have them to, to give substance to the fiction that they are the one China and that they still represent everyone on the mainland. Uh, what we didn't know is that they did this for Xinjiang as well. Um, and the Xinjiang government in exile is one of these things where they will consider it themselves most successful if no one knows that they exist. You know, sort of like officials at a sports game, you know, um, if if too much attention is drawn to them, then they haven't done their job well. They want to be unknown. That's the whole point. Uh, what did they do? They basically uh, made vigorous efforts to recruit Xinjiang refugees who fled from Xinjiang after 1949 often over the Himalayas into northern India, um, often into Kashmir. And they would try to either get them to come to Taiwan, sometimes to study in Chinese and Taiwanese schools. Um, Sometimes they would try to recruit them as officials. Uh, Yobar Khan is going to be the the governor, uh, in quotation marks, of Xinjiang in Taiwan. Um, And for many people, it was never the point to get them to come to Taiwan. It was just to get them to... Uh, say good things about the nationalist government uh, whenever the world media or press started to interview them and see, oh, we have all these refugee camps in Afghanistan or whatnot. Um, whenever Xinjiang came in, uh was uh, brought up in the news, the Taiwan government, so-called Free China, would come out in a very positive light. Um, and so they also tried to uh, sabotage <clears throat> alternative spokesmen for Xinjiang who had fled to Turkey. Um, there were the, uh, men, uh, Isa Yusuf Alpikin, uh, Mohammed Amin Bugra were two prominent Uyghur politicians who, uh, uh, who were active in Xinjiang during the Republican era. They, they, they choose to flee to Turkey, um, and adopt a hostile posture towards both communist China and nationalist China on Taiwan. Um, and this office attempts to basically uh, silence them. They want to neutralize the effect of their propaganda um, and make sure that the only narrative of of Xinjiang that gains the attention of the rest of the world is the Chinese narrative of Xinjiang. Um, and in this sense, both the nationalist narrative for Xinjiang's place in the world and the communist one are identical. Uh, I have this wonderful line in one of the documents I found, and it's Yol Bars, the governor of Xinjiang on Taiwan, says, we need to worry more about the activities of Isa and Eming in the Middle East than we need to worry about the communist bandits, which is how they refer to them, on the mainland. Wow. Uh, because we might disagree with them on so many matters of ideological import, we might fight them in a civil war, but at least they're not going to let Xinjiang be taken away from the modern Chinese state but the separatists in Turkey, they will. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I use this to suggest uh, the differing fates of uh, the Tibetan exile movement and the Xinjiang slash Uyghur exile um, movement. Um, you know, the, I think all Chinese authorities, both in Taiwan and on the mainland, would agree that they're quite pleased that uh, the Xinjiang exile government and Xinjiang in general, uh, throughout most of the Cold War, were pretty well unknown. Mm-hmm.
1: Great, thank you. And the chapter um, kind of goes into some uh, informed speculation, right, about why that might have been. And I think one of the things that at least, one of the um, reasons that at least emerges from um, at the center of the Tibetan God government in exile, which was not necessarily the case um, in the Xinjiang case, um, and it was a figurehead with lots of resources, right, um, with a lot of money. And so thinking about... that uh, these cases in uh, comparative or juxtaposed, in a, a comparative or juxtaposed way, I think really also helps inform how we think about the Tibetan case. Even though that's not a real a feature or a focus of the chapter, it kind of comes hmm. up as a comparative case. Right. So, um, there's also a conclusion, and we're not going to have time to talk about this um, in any detail, but I just want to mention, because I loved um, what you did here at the beginning of the conclusion, um, you end the story with a statue. This is right. a statue of Governor Young, and this is the governor who was assassinated toward the beginning of our story. Um, and the the conclusion says this. this is, these are the words of the book. We might say that Governor Young's statue was the physical embodiment of the historical argument of the book. The legacy of the Qing Empire in 20th century Xinjiang obliged Han rulers in Urumqi to forge a new foundation of political difference. And so, I, I think that is perhaps a nice note to end on. And I, I really um, appreciated that you ended with an object, um, a
0: statue. I think it's a really good cool <laughs> way to
1: bring uh, to bring the story together.
0: We got a picture of it as well. Yes,
1: and there's a cool picture of it and a description of it. So, Justin, there's a million billion things that we didn't talk about. The book is extraordinarily rich, and I think it's um, particularly exciting in its use of the archival materials that you're bringing to us to tell an extraordinarily richly detailed story um, of these transformations in a way that we've only been able to kind of skim the surface of. But given that, and, and assuming that readers... Um, and understanding that readers who go to the book will find much, much more detail about all the things that we talked about. Is there anything right now that you'd like to mention for listeners, and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to become readers?
0: Right. Um, I think the question that I always get asked whenever I do a talk on this book or people have read it, and one of the questions that always comes up is people want to know, do I have any ideas or advice for how... (laughs) How to address the Xinjiang problem today? And the entire time that I was researching and writing this book, um, and many years afterwards, I used to always resist this question. I always wanted to see myself as engaged in the history um, and not make try to draw these broad parallels between something that happened 60 years ago and today. Um, but when I gave the talks in China this past June, I was asked this again, and I think being asked by people in you know in a Chinese audience uh, really changed me because uh, they really wanted to know, you know what I had to say, and they would cite the Chinese saying that, uh, you know, history is like a mirror. It should inform uh, present day actions. And I'm like, yeah, he's got me there. I I, I know that saying um, in Chinese. So I was forced to think about it for the first time. And I actually have come up with the sort of a response. I don't know if it's satisfying for people who ask this question, but, you know, what should the Chinese state do today if they want to try to uh, help the problems that they have with Xinjiang? And what I think about is all the case studies that i analyzed in my book, which one was the most successful? You know, there aren't that many success stories in my book. There's a lot of stories of failure um, and people dying. And uh, But there is one success story, and I think it's the nationalists during the 1940s in trying to meet the Soviet threat um, in Xinjiang, trying to meet the Ely Rebellion. How are we going to deal with this? Um, and they decide to work together, make a grand show of working together with people who disagree with them namely prominent Uyghur politicians in the 1940s. That is their response. I refer to it as ethnopolitical inflation. Oh, the Soviets have their own Uyghurs as the president of the East Turkestan Republic. We need to appoint the first Uyghur governor of Xinjiang in response to negate the novelty of what they've done and show how enlightened we are. Um, And for this brief period of about five years, you saw the Nationalists working together with Uyghur and Kazakh leaders who had some degree of autonomy That has never been replicated since. Um, And this was admired throughout the world at the time. We can read foreign media reports saying that what the nationalists are doing is quite remarkable. Um, They really seem to be supporting their words with actions and being somewhat tolerant. Um, Now, they had their own agenda and why they were doing this. But the basic lesson of make a grand show, hopefully sincerely, but even if not sincerely, at least still make the show of, of working together with people who publicly criticize and denounce you. It's, it's an effective way of gaining political credibility that you can then spend in other places.
1: Awesome. Thank you for that. And I think that leaves us with lots of food for thought as well. So, Justin, now that the book is out, and congratulations on the book coming out. Um, Thank you. What's, what's next for you? What are you currently working on?
0: Um, it, 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 it comes out of the first book project, actually. Um, when I was doing all the research for Xinjiang, uh, you learned very quickly that Xinjiang also what, uh, has, is the site of the of uh, part of the ancient Silk Road, and many of the desert conditions have been able to help preserve uh, a lot of antiquities and manuscripts in the northwest part of China, and many of the sources that I would use are first-hand personal accounts of foreign explorers who would travel through Xinjiang during the time under question, and you would get unique perspectives on them that the Chinese documents wouldn't always have. Um, And as I continued to read these sources of foreign explorers, I became more and more intrigued by the relationship that these foreign explorers seemed to have with Chinese officials. Because I was only familiar with the discourse of criminalization that we hear so often today. Foreign explorers, archaeologists were cultural thieves, they plundered, they took things away. Um, And that's true to a certain extent. But when I started realizing that the relationships that they had with the people who, in whose jurisdiction they that these antiquities existed, were actually extremely positive all the way up until the 1920s. I started to want to answer that question of why, if these people are seen as such horrible thieves today, why were they so roundly praised um, at the time they were actually doing this? Uh, praised not just by other Westerners but by Chinese. Both local Xinjiang officials and Chinese scholars would do this. Um, and so I decided, you know, I need to do a comprehensive study, a reassessment of foreign archaeology, foreign explorers to mostly northwest China. But I treat the entire country at certain times as well um, to just try to put them back in their original context. Uh you know, how was it that so many antiquities could be taken away from China? Not for just one or two years, but for a 30-year period. They kept coming back and kept taking stuff away. Yes, unequal state power is involved, but that is not the entire story. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm undertaking uh, a reassessment of all the major foreign expeditions that went to Xinjiang and other parts of China for the first th- th- three decades of the 20th century to really answer the question of, how and why uh, did all of this stuff leave China?
1: Well, best of luck with that project. And thanks for taking time out of that work to talk with me about this work. It's really been a pleasure to both read the book and to talk with you about it. So thanks again.
0: Yes, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.
1: You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us at the podcast. And we'll catch you again next time.